1: I think these two people are rather famous, whether you are a believer in Christ or not, whether you have spent extensive time in Revelation or not. They are the two witnesses, and we'll explore their life next on Abounding Grace. chapter 11 of Revelation, we are introduced to a couple of men who are witnesses for Christ, and they are amazing in that the world will know of them. The world will watch their martyrdom and their resurrection. It's all part of this study in Revelation that we are continuing to explore. Here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, welcome to the program. If you'll join us, we're in chapter 11 of Revelation. Here's Gary now with today's program.
0: In the study of the book of Revelation, we often begin with reading something out of the Old Testament where the text in the book of Revelation is actually rooted. Remember I said that the figures of speech and the imagery of the book of Revelation are usually taken from something in the Old Testament. So it's always good for us to read that Old Testament passage before we get started. So let's begin today by reading from Zechariah, chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 1 through 6. Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please listen carefully. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was waking from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now remember how we have divided the book of Revelation. In the first chapter, you have the introductory comments, the principles of interpretation are set forth there the purpose of the book, and the main character of the book. Then in chapters 2 and 3, you have the churches to whom the book is addressed, mentioned in a series of letters. And then beginning with chapter 4 and going through chapter 11, we have a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then with chapter 19, on toward the end of the book, we have the prophecy of the fall of Rome. Now, the purpose, remember, for the first century hearers of this book is to give believers encouragement and to inform them that the true two great enemies of the church have absolutely no future, as well as anyone else who treats the church like these two parties treated the church. They will suffer the same consequences. And the two great enemies of the church in the first century were apostate Judaism, represented by Jerusalem, and the anti-Christian Roman Empire. So now we come to the end of the section on God's judgment of Judaism. Last week, we looked at the first two verses, and the first two verses have to do with the measuring of the temple, which indicates since there is nothing about the fall of the temple in Revelation 11, that the temple had not fallen yet, and we know that it fell in 70 AD. So what is the point of these two verses? Well, let me quickly summarize. Literal Jerusalem will be destroyed, but spiritual Jerusalem will be delivered. The holy city of Jerusalem, everything outside the measured temple, which included apostate Judaism at that point, would be destroyed by God's judgment in 70 A.D. That is only that which is measured. Just like in an earlier chapter, only those who were sealed would survive. So it's talking about the sealing and protection of the true church of God spiritual Jerusalem, those who profess faith in Christ and their children, of which there were many, many in Jerusalem in 70 AD. They were the only people who would be protected when God's judgment fell. The whole city would burn, that is, everything outside the sanctuary, everything outside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would be destroyed. As I've already said, there is no historical record of any Christian dying in the fall of Jerusalem. Now, I ended last week by beginning to talk about these two witnesses. And remember, now in the first verse of the first chapter, there is the word in the New American Standard Version, communicating. And in the King James Version, the word is signified. And that Greek word means to write in figures of speech and in symbols. Remember, the book of Revelation is entirely true. Every word is true, but it is not literally true. It is figuratively true. That is, there are many figures of speech that we have to figure out what they mean and how to interpret them. And John was good enough to use those figures of speech by and large that are explained earlier in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So now we come to two witnesses. There is a lot of controversy about who these two witnesses are. Remember, we are not to take them literally, uh, but there are some people who believe that they are two Jewish preachers of the first century. Others believe that it is going to be the appearance of Elijah or Moses sometime in connection with the tribulation or the second coming of Christ. But, beloved, I don't buy either one of those explanations. So let me try and explain my case for those um, who those two witnesses are. Notice what it says in verse 3. God is speaking and he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, that is three and a half years or 42 months, or as I explained last week, the broken seven, that period of time in which the holy city would be destroyed. That is when these two witnesses give their testimony. And it is three and a half years to symbolize the fact that it is not seven years. So it's not a long period of time, as the number seven would imply, but an abbreviated period of time. This persecution will not last forever, but it is during that time of persecution that these two witnesses are given God's authority to prophesy. They're going to be dressed in sackcloth. We see in the last part of verse 3. And there in verse 4, two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. So there is the direct reference to Zechariah 4 that I read a while ago, which talks about the lampstand. And in the first chapter of Revelation, it is actually symbolic of the church. So let's go back to Revelation 1 because. This is important to bear out. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and seven lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the preachers of the churches, of those seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in Zechariah 4, you have this gorgeous golden lampstand. But no matter how ornate or beautiful it is, if it is not connected to a source of oil, it will be of absolutely no use. It will not give off any light whatsoever. But in Zechariah's picture, this lampstand is connected to two olive trees. So it's not just a container with oil in it. There is this never-ending source of oil for this lampstand to give light continuously. And the great point here is that these two witnesses represent the golden lampstand, this faithful church that has a constant supply of oil from the Holy Spirit. As it says, not by strength or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That is how they are going to accomplish anything that they are going to accomplish. It's not because they are intelligent. It's not because they are eloquent. It is because of the power of the Holy Spirit empowering these two witnesses to give testimony to Almighty God. And the Spirit uses them powerfully. Now we saw last week that two witnesses play a very important role in both the Old Testament and the New in Deuteronomy 17:6, we read, On the evidence of two witnesses or more, he who is to die shall be put to death, but shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So in a court of law, in order for someone to be convicted of a crime, there had to be two witnesses, not one, who could corroborate each other's testimony. Then in Matthew 18, you have Jesus setting up what we call church discipline. And if someone sins, you are to go to them. But if you can't win them by yourself, then you take two or three witnesses with you to establish their guilt. And if that doesn't work, you take them then to the session. Then in Luke 10:1, it says, when the Lord sent out 70 preachers... To witness, he sent them out two by two. So this idea of two witnesses plays an important role in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But then in the second and third chapters of these seven churches, only two did the Lord Jesus Christ have no complaint against. Only two were faithful enough that Jesus did not charge them with any crime, and those were Smyrna and philadelphia so who i think the two witnesses refer to are not two jewish preachers in the first century i do not believe it is a revival of elijah and moses i believe it simply means the faithful church the two witnesses in sackcloth were the faithful church testifying to the guilt of jerusalem The very word witness in the Bible had a little different meaning than it has for us today. We use the word witness to mean someone who goes out and shares the gospel, and that's okay. But in the Bible, the word witness had the nuance of testifying to the guilt of someone, confirming the guilt of someone. There had to be two witnesses to confirm the guilt of a criminal. So you have these witnesses of the Lord, the faithful church, like Smyrna in Philadelphia, standing true in the midst of the burning of the holy city of Jerusalem by the Roman armies. They are still being faithful. But the primary element of their gospel was judgment. They were dressed in sackcloth as a symbol of mourning, Jeremiah pointed out that in eras like the days in which he lived, when preaching takes place, the primary emphasis must be judgment before restoration. That there must be the judgment of God to come to clean the ground in order for things to be restored. So here you have the faithful church of God Sufficiently condemning the apostasy of Judaism, standing firm in the midst of a culture that is literally falling apart. And they are preaching judgment. Now, notice their authority. They are in, are under a divine commission. Their power is the power of the Holy Spirit, and that power is even greater than that of Elijah and Moses. Both of these two godly men are alluded to in verse 6. It says they have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, just like Elijah did once. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, like Moses did once. And they can smite the earth with every plague any time they want. Now the point is, Here is a powerful imagery that says, These witnesses spoke the invincible, irresistible word of Almighty God. Their testimony was faithful, and it could not be effectively resisted. They were on assignment from God. And if anyone tried to harm a hair on their heads before the mission was finished, it says, They must be killed. And regardless of the persecution of Rome or the persecution of apostate Judaism, they were thoroughly effective and victorious in their task. And as I said last week, the book of Acts records how tens upon tens of thousands of people were converted to Christ in Jerusalem through this faithful Christian witness before 70 A.D. But in verse 5 it says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. The imagery of fire as the Word of God is common in the Old Testament, and particularly we see it in the book of Jeremiah. For there, on at least two occasions, Jeremiah refers to the Word of God as fire. And the Lord says through Jeremiah... Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that smashes the rod to pieces? So no one could harm a hair on the faithful church's head, as long as they were still involved in the mission that God sent them to fulfill. Anyone who tried to harm them before their time was up, and they had finished their mission would themselves be killed, their power could not be resisted. Number seven, when they have finished their testimony, it is only when the two witnesses' work is completed. It is only when they are finished without interruption of their preaching and testifying and their witness bearing against apostate Jerusalem that then and only then the beast that comes up out of the abyss makes war against them and overcomes them and kills them. So they preach and they do so effectively throughout this three-and-a-half-year period. Even though the city is burning down, they're able to lead many, many people to Christ, and this while they were being persecuted by the Jews during that period of time. They were still being faithful during this horrible time without fear, and they were not allowed to die until the preaching was finished. Hinkstenberg, a great German commentator on Revelation, said this, When God has no further need for their service, when their death can produce more fruit than their life, then they will die, but not before. And it's the same way with you and me, beloved. Someday we will die, but not until the work of God has that he's given us is finished and not until we can accomplish more by our death than we can by our life. And they were killed by a beast. Now in the book of revelation, as well as in Daniel beasts are figures of anti Christian states and cultures and revolt against almighty God. And we'll actually come back to these beasts later on. But understand, before we go any further, that faithful witnesses are always at war with the beasts of this world. Whatever you do, don't think that peaceful coexistence is possible with the beast. Don't even think of bargaining or negotiating with the beast. Don't think of winning the favor of beasts. Beast and these two witnesses, the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be at war throughout the history of the world until Christ makes all of the nations his footstool. Then notice where they died, verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called or figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So this city where they were killed, we've already identified in verse two. It is where the temple is located. It is the holy city. Figuratively speaking, because of its sin and immorality and perversion and adultery and apostasy, it is identified as Sodom and Egypt. And just as they did, the Jews persecuted and oppressed the true people of God. Now, these are figurative names. Literally, it is where Jesus was crucified, which was right outside of Jerusalem. So these two witnesses, as it were were the faithful church who bore the witness of judgment against apostate Judaism because of her sins and did so until the work was finished. And then this horrible beast rises up, which we shall see was Rome, and starts killing off the faithful church. And they begin in this city called Sodom and Egypt, which is really the place where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem, in the first century. So here is another reason why I believe this section has to do with the prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But it is not limited to that particular point. Because in Acts 1.8, it says that Christ has his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other parts of the earth. So the effective witness-bearing of the Lord Jesus Christ began in Jerusalem. Then the faithful witnesses were killed. Then, as we are going to see, they are resurrected, and the gospel is continued to be preached throughout Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth to this very day. And notice what the rebels do with the corpses of the witnesses. Verse 9. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So there it is saying, the rebels are so glad that the faithful church died as it were, that they are celebrating its demise. They are treating the corpses of these faithful Christians with indignity. They had triumphant celebrations, all of which were short-lived. But they gave each other presents, and they had a rip-roaring time celebrating the fact that finally, These two witnesses are out of the way. Finally, we are able to persecute and kill and feed to the lions and burn at the stake and everything else, the faithful church in the first, second, and third centuries. Now, we are free from them. We hated them. Their preaching tormented us. And that's the kind of preachers we need today.